Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. If you have a pew Bible, that would be page 862. If you can't find the sermon outline this morning, that's because there isn't one included in this week's message. I've decided to uh, take a little different approach, and we're going to be studying. Kevin and I will be preaching through 1 John now for the next several weeks and months. We want to uh, give attention to another part of the Bible that's not as well known in the New Testament. As we looked at 1 Peter last year, we want to turn now to 1 John and uh, hear its message to us. Written, of course, by the same one who wrote the Revelation of John and 2nd and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. We turn to that one disciple whom Jesus loved, who was there at the upper room, who was there when he walked on water, who was there as a fisherman when he was called by Jesus personally, and who followed him even to the end of his days. We turn to 1 John chapter 1, and as we do, we notice uh, and recognize that the book doesn't even mention his name, and it doesn't mention to whom it's written. But we can be sure of this. In that day and time, possibly, maybe even probably written from Ephesus, John lived as we do in a culture of murder and rape and injustice, of scheming and deceit and kidnapping and abortion. He lived in a time of addiction to pornography prior to the internet. In other words, a day and time just like ours. Morally and personally speaking, it was a decadent period. The coming of Rome had not improved the lot of the people morally and spiritually, and they were hurting. So Paul writes, I mean, excuse me, John writes to them, and to us. But we find ourselves also in the midst of rape and injustice and murder and deceit all around. Into that, John speaks. But first, let's pray together. We take a moment, Lord, to thank you for your word and to ask you to direct and help us in the study of it that it might not be just an academic exercise, nor that it might not be just a selfish exercise for what we would get out of it, but that it might be to your glory and to the progress of religion and the Holy Spirit in our lives and to the transformation of each one of us into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So injustice, murder, abortion, kidnapping, what answer do we offer? What is our response? The world is is, uh, confused about Christianity because it thinks that we are all about two things that it's really not interested in. People live in the midst of these injustices and, and obscenities and atrocities And they look at the church and they say, that's an ideology 
That's a moralistic group of people who are trying to live a clean life in a dirty world. I'm not interested. Or they see us as a group who hold to creedal statements about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and various Ten Commandments and rights and wrongs. And they say, I'm not interested. And John, perhaps in that day, recognized the same thing. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he doesn't give moralistic ideology or creedal statements. He gives us a person. Notice in verse 1, that he, the one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Whatever else he's going to say, he's going to begin and end with this. My life has been changed by a person. And while the implications of that do include moralistic actions, rights and wrongs, and it certainly includes statements about the orthodoxy of Jesus Christ and who he was as fully man and fully God and Redeemer of his people, the Messiah. What I have to offer you and what he had to offer me was himself. And so I begin there. And we recognize from the beginning that if these things had not been revealed to us, we would never know them. Here we have another statement that tells us that there is one who is from the beginning, etc. But how else would we know? Now, he happened to see him personally. But as you know, in reading the Gospel of John, his understanding and comprehension of these things was very gradual. He didn't see it immediately, although he saw Jesus in the flesh, personally present in his life. He did not see what Jesus was until God began to open his eyes. He saw Jesus heal the blind so that they could see. He saw his own understanding growing and increasing from just being a fisherman to now being one of the closest associates. And he was able to be present at the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus glorified with Moses and Elijah. But he would know none of that, nor would we, had God not revealed it to us, graciously opening before us the truth. So John begins with this. And this is, of course, what in his day and ours people objected to, that there could be any truth. The truth was anything more than just a personal set of constructs, that I am going to to believe and to do what I have come to be convinced of. I don't intend to convince you of it, and I certainly don't want you to convince me of your truth. However, John says... That's no longer possible. It's not possible for you to maintain your own perspective and your own selfish ideologies. And it's no longer possible to tune him out. For he was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He is introducing us to Jesus. And he's doing it in a typically Johannine way. He did the same sort of thing in the first part of his, first of his gospel, when he spoke of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and his being with the Father from all eternity before he came. It's the same person. And if you've read John, you understand 1 John, immediately the echoes are the same. The same concept, the same ideas. The life appeared, he says, verse 2. Not life on the planet. Life was already here. But this unique life came, and we have seen it. He wrote in, first, in John chapter 1, we, He dwelt among us, the, flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld its glory. Now, he says, this life appears, we have seen it, and we testify it, and we, uh, to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Already we see that this is a truly unique person from the Father, giving eternal life, and making it all possible. This life appeared, we have seen it, and we proclaim it to you. He was with the Father, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. There's no other way to say it. He's repeating himself. He's exercising redundancy. He's continuing to say the same thing. We want you to know that he is real, and we have seen him. And he is the life-changing element in our lives, and the only hope for the world. This life appeared, we have seen it, and we testified. Of course, he's talking to eyewitness accounts now. His own personal experience. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. Not so that you would agree with us. Not so that you would follow us. But so that we would be connected. Because if we're going to have connection, and as he goes on to say, if we're going to have joy, it has to be because of him. There is no other connection or joy of any meaning or purpose save in Christ. We proclaim to you, we're telling you, what has been revealed to us. We want to open your eyes. We want to pull back your blindness. We want you to see something that although you live in this world and you may have heard his name, you haven't seen so far. You can't see him now because he's gone. He's ascended into heaven. He's not on the earth as he once was. But you can see him. We've seen him. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. So that we can be connected. Now this word fellowship you'll see also repeated. It's a central concept in the opening verses of 1 John. Fellowship. Connection between strangers. People who have nothing else in common or very little brought together by this one who was from the beginning. Such a band existed in the days of John with the twelve. 
and with the other associates who came around him. People who barely knew each other, if at all, who were brought together and combined into the little band of disciples that followed Jesus. Now John had had fellowship with his brother, James. He had known the other fishermen in his trade. He knew what connection to people was. But this was something new. This is about someone who has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, so that your eyes might be open too. And our fellowship, primarily, we want you to understand, is not, even though I just mentioned it, not with you. It is rooted in, established upon, grounded in the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So he said a great deal, <clears throat> excuse me, in just these few words. <clears throat> he said the answer to our lives, the most meaningful thing that can happen to us is to meet who, that one, he, who, which, was from the beginning. No other remedy. No other rescuer. Because John doesn't introduce himself in this letter, the commentators believe that he already knew these people to some extent, or at least knew who they were by the connection with others. So he's writing to someone who he assumes will be somewhat sympathetic with what he says, but he doesn't appeal to them and say, now you know me, you can trust me, follow what I say. John becomes almost invisible in this opening text, just as he does in in John chapter 1, the gospel, when he steps back from it and simply points all the focus and direction upon him who was and is and is to come. So this central figure is what he's going to be talking about and unfolding and defending This central figure, as he says, is who he will be be proclaiming, the end of verse 1. We proclaim this one whom we have touched, whom we have looked at, whom we have seen with our eyes. This one we proclaim concerning this word of life. He is the word of life. He is, as it says there uh, in verse 2, the eternal life. He is life itself. And as he says in John 1, that life was the light of men. And to all who received him, he gave them the privilege to become the children of God. Now he is inviting us into that privileged company. But there's only one entry point, And it's not moralistic ideology. And it's not creedal statements. The entry point is to behold, to see Christ. Now, he recognizes naturally that they can't see him as he did. He appeals to his eyewitness standing as he gives these words, but he, do, he recognizes that they are scattered across the Asia Minor or the Mediterranean Basin or somewhere, wherever they were that he was writing to. This may have been a general letter that was circulated among many congregations. They can't see him. Many of the people he's writing to haven't seen him and never will unless he comes back in that day, which he did not. Nevertheless, he is speaking about something as if it were so. Something that he himself has seen and he wants them to see. 
He doesn't say, well, I'm sorry. You know, if you had been there, you would know what I was talking about. If you had seen Jesus like I did on those dusty streets of Palestine, then you'd be convinced like I am. He does not make that argument. He does not say, I'm sorry, you missed it. The ship has left. The ship has sailed. What he says is, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our, and with our hands have touched, this we proclaim. He's alive. Life is at the center of this, even though you can't see him, touch him, and listen to him as we did. We're here to tell you that he exists and that he existed in human form. And we saw it. We testify, you have to take our word for it because he's, you can't go to Palestine today and find him. He's gone. He's gone to heaven. Nevertheless, we can have fellowship with each other. And that fellowship is based on what the Father and his Son have done for us. Because they're alive. They're at work. We're talking, in other words, about reality unseen. There's something going on that you can't see. And there's a person of great significance that you may never have met. But he is the center, not only of your life, my life, but of all life. Our fellowship, one with another, we hope will be strengthened. But also, our fellowship is not just with each other. It is with the Father and the Son. And we write this to make our joy or your joy, depending on your favorite translation, complete. In other words, a shared joy. This is a phrase which Jesus used at least twice recorded in the Gospel of John. It must have been ringing in his ears. Joy complete. I want to make your joy complete. It's a rather significant concept, at least in terms of Jesus, the way Jesus gave to it. What does he mean? He means that you can have some joy. You can have some fun. You can be somewhat happy. But it cannot be completed, fulfilled, satisfied, and realized apart from the presence of Christ and God's people sharing it together. So this joy is not something that we just have in our hearts in knowing Christ. It is something that is to be shared. And that comes to its greatest flowering only in the sharing. We write this. He gives now a purpose for his writing. Verse 4. There's another one revealed in chapter 2. But surely this is one of the most significant, for he mentions it first. He says, we write this so that your joy would be complete. So that you would have, and that we would have, our joy would be fulfilled. Fully and robustly manifested. Fellowship with an abiding note of richness. All other joys fade and diminish. But here is one that lasts. So he said a great deal. He has said that our answers lie in a person and not in an ideology or a 
series of theological statements, they are simply echoes of that person, the outcome of him. And we wouldn't know anything about him at all if it hadn't been shown to us. We would never have discovered this on our own. You must feel the weight of that. This has been revealed to us. Without him, darkness. Indeed, chapter 1 of John. He was the light. The light was the light of men. Without him, there is no light. There is no understanding. There is no hope. There is no peace. There is no answer. There is nothing. He created the heavens and the earth. So we're talking about someone who's very significant, though often overlooked. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. We're here to tell you about him, and he is the central focus of our lives, and he can make us not only rich individually, but through fellowship and this concept of complete joy, he can make us rich as a body, as a group. So now it gets more specific, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. He spoke. We didn't just look at him and touch him, but he, he revealed things to us, not just himself, but this is the message from him, and this is what we declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Again, without him... We know nothing. But with him, we don't have an admixture and an alloyed about of truth. We have a full dose of it, perfect, full, and complete. This is the message we have heard from him. This is what we declare to you. For he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no sin. There is no selfishness. There is none of this pride that leaders and teachers often have. There's none of this boastfulness that great leaders and teachers often have. There's no darkness in him at all. He can be trusted. His word is true. Everything he says can be relied upon. You can stake your life on it. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now by contrast, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. So here's a tension point. So far, what he has said in verse, for the first five verses is free from internal tension in the text. That is, you might feel in tension with, uh, tension with the truths as they are proclaimed and say, well, I don't agree with that. But he doesn't introduce the tension. He simply exclaims and proclaims what he says and knows to be true. But he's, he recognizes and grants in verse 6 that if we claim to have fellowship with him, that is this fellowship idea again, if we fellowship, uh, to have fellowship with him as is mentioned back up in verse 3, 
if we claim to have connection to him, if we claim to be one of his followers, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. So this is a strange fellowship. A lot of fellowship groups are made up of people who share the same sins, the same weaknesses, the same proclivities, the same problems. They're drawn together because they are able to share in their weaknesses and hurts. And while this is a fellowship of the hurting, we are coming into the presence of one who is purity itself, and we must check our sins at the door, so to speak. In the Old West, you know, the outlaw wasn't permitted in town because there might be violence. So the sheriff said, or the marshal said, you must check your guns at the end of t- edge of town. This isn't the Wild West. This isn't the Old West. But he does say, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't live by the truth. Now, on the one hand, of course, we know, and John knows, that everyone sins. We'll get to that. So what does he mean here? Does he mean that everyone is disqualified? Does he mean that no one can then come into this precious fellowship? That no one can have an audience with this bright and shining king? No. But it takes him a minute to get there. What he's saying is, you can't come in if you want to sin. If you really just want what you want. Period. If that's all you'll listen to and all you'll consider, then you can't bear the light. John says in his gospel, men love the darkness rather than the light. He says it again here. If you claim to have fellowship with him, yet you walk or love the darkness, then you lie and do not live by the truth. Interesting that he uses we there in verse 6. Because he's been there. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to say, thus far and no further, Lord. I'm not going to, I'm I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to do what you say. I know what you want me to do. I'm not going to do it. He's had that experience. It hasn't worked out well. And now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's he's warning us. This This is a fellowship of integrity. Not of perfection. See, there's a difference here. This is a nuance. He's not saying that we have to be perfect in order to get in. He's saying that we have to be honest in order to get in. We have to have integrity. Admit our sins. Ask for help for them. But not try to hide them or obscure them from him or anyone else. As if we could. So here's a warning at the beginning of the definition of this fellowship. This message that he's proclaiming and has heard from him and is declaring to us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in that darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. And you know and I know that problems begin when this happens. When we say 80%, of my life, you can have it all, but not the 20 or the 30%. 
When we begin to break down our integrity and move forward in the kingdom of God, we find ourselves blocked. Not by other people, because they rarely notice, especially if it's a very private thing, but by the one who is light itself. So we don't come into this light without integrity. You see the difference? He's not saying we have to be perfect to get in. He's saying if we claim that we are perfect, verse 6, if we say that we can do it, and we are doing it, and yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie and we do not live by the truth. And so it must be entered only by integrity. But if we walk in the light... This isn't, this is, there's a way out of this. If we walk in the light, that is, if we, if we don't claim to be without sin, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we can have fellowship with one another, and now, more information. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He's been proceeding along more or less philosophically, in this typical Johannine way, using the words that we find also in Second John, Third John, and the Gospel. But now he comes down to specifics. He's been speaking of the light. He's been speaking of revelation. He's been speaking of fellowship. And now he says, if we walk in this light with integrity, if we come in, in other words, seeking the light rather than to hide ourselves or to hide our sins. If we come into this light openly and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your help, then he is as, then we get to see him because he is in the light. Otherwise, he's obscured by darkness. We, we can't find him because our own darkness closes in around us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, which is one thing we most devoutly desire, connection to one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now here's again something that John saw. He was at the cross. He was at Calvary, unlike so many others who were Jesus' close associates. He's seen the blood of Jesus, may have touched it, probably had something to do with it as he cared for the body afterwards. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is a startling thing. I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, first of all, it comes from the outside. It is something that happened in reality just as he saw and heard and touched him when he was on the earth. And now we're learning about an event that is truly transformational. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. We can't really stop here. As he goes on to explain. But I want, before we get to verses 8 and 9 and into chapter 2, I want you to see that this is really the first specific claim that he makes outside of 
the, the greatness of God, he now speaks specifically about the need and the context of fellowship with him. And he says, If we walk in the light and he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Only the second time that we've heard his name mentioned in this passage. And the other, two, the other time was also in the context of his son. John wants us to know that they are connected. To know one is to know the other. I and the Father are one, John records. Jesus saying. We are now being brought not just to a person whom Jesus saw in Palestine, but we are being brought to the very throne of God and to his very presence. And so he repeats himself a bit in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That's parallel to verse 6. If we claim to to have fellowship with him, sort of in an opposite way, yet that we walk in the darkness, then we lie. So, he says it twice, he says it both ways. If we make a false claim on the one hand, if we, on the other hand, claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I find myself chased by the time, so we'll have to just draw this together briefly. But this is really the heart of the matter, and we'll save it for next week or the week after. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One of the great statements of grace found right here in all of Scripture. One of the great statements about how one enters this fellowship and remains in it. About how this fellowship was created in the beginning by the presence of the Savior. And how he has sustained it as the righteous one. We can't say everything, but we say this. He is faithful. He is just. And has the capacity to forgive us of our sins. Because of his blood, which is mentioned in verse 7. There's a pathway, and you've heard about it. So we come to the cross. We come to Christ. And we come to the definition of him in its most succinct form. He doesn't introduce us to him as a wonder-working miracle man. He doesn't introduce us to him as a great moral teacher, an expositor of truths. He introduces us to him as the slain Son of God, who is at his most beautiful when he died. Because behind that death was not weakness, it was strength. It was not unfaithfulness and our sins and walking in the darkness. It was complete, utter, sincere, and final faithfulness. And that justice 
which he accomplished for us and completely fulfilled, is now pleading at the right hand of the Father for our benefit. So that when we die, and we will, so that when we need a Savior, we will have one. Truly wonderful. John has opened up for us a pathway to life. He has given us in just a few words a tremendously helpful thing. My life, my joy comes from him. And as I trust him, as I follow him, he not only gives me life, but forgives me of my sins. Now we'll come back when we have time. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for breaking through the darkness. It must have been very trying for you to have dealt with the disciples and even more trying to deal with us. We know that we try your patience. We know that we operate without integrity at times. And we pray that you will forgive us. And ask that we might focus upon the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your Son. And as we leave to serve you the rest of this day and this week, we pray that as we share this faith with others and our hope within our homes, that our focus would fall primarily upon him who was and is and is to come, the Savior, the life giver, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen.